Well, hello there, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that matters to ambulatory care pharmacy practice. My name is Stuart Haynes, and, and thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to participate in this professional development activity. In today's episode, we're going to critically examine a cost-effectiveness study. As many of our listeners are aware, the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitors and the glucagon-like peptide 1 or GLP-1 receptor agonists are recommended and preferred treatments in patients with type 2 diabetes if they have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, heart failure, or chronic kidney disease. However, some experts have started to recommend these agents as first line instead of metformin for most patients with type 2 diabetes because they have the potential benefit of long-term effects in this high-risk population. But many practitioners are deeply concerned about the costs of these agents and wonder, and I would say rightfully so, whether these agents are cost-effective if used first line. Indeed, the American Diabetes Association's standards of care acknowledge that cost is a potential concern. So there is this tension between the potential high cost of a medication weighed against its potential therapeutic benefits. And this is exactly the kind of situation where a well-constructed cost-effectiveness analysis can be helpful. Many health plans use cost-effectiveness analyses to help inform formulary decisions, and practitioners and patients want more reassurance that a costly medication is, in fact, quote, worth it. And joining us today to talk about this study are Dr. Amanda Smith and Dr. Nicole Slater from the Bernard J. Dunn School of Pharmacy at Shenandoah University. Dr. Slater has been a frequent contributor to iFormerX and is a member of our editorial board. And Dr. Smith is a PGY1 pharmacy practice resident with an emphasis in ambulatory care and academia. So Nicole, welcome back on the iFormerX podcast. And Amanda, it's great to have you here as a first-time contributor. Thanks, Stuart. It's always great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Stuart, and I'm happy to be here today. So, Amanda, before we talk about the pharmacoeconomic analysis that you critically appraised in, in your commentary, can you give us a little background information about the SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists? I know their use has increased substantially over the past few years, but what's so special about these agents? And, and if they are so fantastic, as some have claimed, why aren't they used more often? So although SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists are effective in lowering blood glucose, so ranging from about a 1 to 2 point reduction in A1C, they have other clinical benefits as well, which has allowed them to gain so much popularity in both patients with diabetes and even those without diabetes. For example, as you're likely aware, GLP-1s have weight loss benefits, and even though it is not discussed as often, SGLT2 inhibitors can assist with weight management as well. Furthermore, many different studies for both drug classes have shown reduction in cardiovascular outcomes and have even demonstrated some significant mortality benefits. 
Certain SGLT2 inhibitors are known for their renal benefits as well as reduction in hospitalization from heart failure admissions. SGLT2 inhibitors also have some perks in that they come in an oral, once-a-day small pill, and they have limited side effects or even contraindications for use. And then as for GLP-1s, they do come in an injection form. However, most GLP-1s that are used in practice today are dosed once a week. So it's pretty convenient for the patients to take on a regular basis, even if they have an aversion to needles. Although quite effective, these newer medications have become more challenging to obtain and are often still used as second-line therapy today. Certain GLP-1s have been on a nationwide back order and are slowly starting to come back in stock. And this has hindered many providers from prescribing these agents due to the fear that the patient will be without medication. Even if the medications are back in the pharmacies now, they are still often unaffordable for patients. An estimated out-of-pocket cost for GLP-1s can range anywhere from roughly $700 to $1,000 a month, and then SGLT2 inhibitors from roughly $300 to $500 per month. Even with prior authorizations getting approved or insurance covering a portion, these medication copays are typically still not affordable for the average patient. There are coupons and patient assistance programs that do exist for medications in these drug classes and are actually used frequently in practice. However, the restrictions to qualify for the assistance are vast, leading to increased patient frustration, not adherence, and delays in treatment. However, over the past few years, more insurance plans, including the majority of Medicare Part D plans, have been adding certain agents from these drug classes to their formularies, given the benefits they have, not only for patients with diabetes, but for other patient populations as well. Providers do try to prescribe these medications. However, it's more often as second-line agents, despite the new 2023 guidelines that now have them listed alongside metformin as first-line therapy. So let's talk about the study that you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary. The study was published in October 2022 in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it's entitled First-Line Therapy for Type 2 Diabetes with Sodium Glucose Co-Transporter 2 Inhibitors and Glucagon-like Peptide 1 Receptor Agonists, a Cost-Effectiveness Study. We provide a link to the paper on the iFormerX website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and results? So this was a health economic analysis that used a validated computer simulation to compare lifetime cost-effectiveness of first-line therapy with SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists versus metformin. They looked specifically at drug-naive patients in the United States with type 2 diabetes and followed the 2021 ADA guidelines for baseline strategy. So when the Hemoglobin A1c was at least 7%. Treatment consisted of initial metformin or SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonist. The simulation looked at roughly 500 patients who self-reported diabetes or had a hemoglobin A1c of more than 6.5% within the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey from the year 2013 to 2016. The study population included about 50% women with an average age of 55 years, and 36% of the population had one or more diabetic complications. 
only a small percentage of these patients had cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease, and some of the patients had diabetes for a number of years while others were newly diagnosed. The primary outcome that was assessed included life expectancy, lifetime cost, and incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, or ICERs. Overall, they found that when using SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonist therapies as first line, patients had lower lifetime rates of macrovascular complications, which included ischemic heart disease, myocardial infarction, heart failure, and stroke when compared to metformin but they cost much more than metformin. There was minimal difference shown in the microvascular changes when compared to metformin. According to the study, first-line SGLT2 inhibitors cost about $43,000 more and added roughly two quality-adjusted months versus first-line metformin. First-line injectable GLP-1 receptor agonists were actually considered to be inferior to metformin because they not only cost more, but also shortened the quality-adjusted life years. The overall projected life expectancy was said to improve by roughly three months with SGLT2 inhibitors and about 3.5 months with GLP-1 receptor agonist if used as first-line therapies when compared to metformin. However, neither the SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists fell below the willingness-to-pay threshold of $150,000 per quality-adjusted life year, which this was the predetermined criteria set to be considered cost-effective. They found that a price reduction of about 70% would be needed for SGLT2 inhibitors and a reduction of 90% for GLP-1 receptor agonists based on that willingness-to-pay threshold which equates to an annual cost of $1,800 per year or $5 per day for SGLT2 inhibitors and $2,100 per year or $6 per day for an GLP-1 agonist. Overall, they found that these two drug classes do not show enough benefit at their current cost. So, Nicole, cost-effectiveness studies can be wildly inaccurate because the investigators must use estimates of costs and estimate the outcomes. So that's why it's really important to look at the sensitivity analyses to make certain the results of the study are consistent across a wide range of estimated costs and outcomes. Can you tell us a bit about the sensitivity analyses performed in this study and what variables would have the biggest impact on cost effectiveness for these two classes of drugs? Yeah, so as you mentioned, cost-effectiveness studies can be pretty inaccurate, so it's important to review the results closely. This study actually employed a deterministic one-way sensitivity analysis, which basically looks at how changing one factor at a time while holding all the other variables constant at their expected value affects the general outcome. So, for example, in this study, the investigators reported different outcome models for changing the discounted rates of the medications, but that even with an included discount, the SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonist classes were not actually cost-effective when compared to metformin, and that providing a discount on these drugs is still not affordable. However, this is just a small piece of the puzzle because with that type of analysis, We assume that nothing else changes when, in fact, there are many factors that can change along with a discounted rate. 
So this test was used to analyze cost variables, hemoglobin A1C thresholds for changing treatment, and the upper and lower bounds of medication effects on cardiovascular risk factors. But again, all of these demonstrated that the medication classes would still not be affordable. It's difficult really to say how these variables would affect each other, but there are other analyses that could be performed although more complex, to see how different parameters would interact with each other and affect the overall outcome. This study also calculated prices by using publicly available Medicare costs for each of the drug classes from 2019, which may have inflated the total price of the medications and biased the cost against using SGLT2s and GLP-1 receptor agonists. Furthermore, The study utilized class-level effects versus individual medications, which in some cases certainly could have made a difference, especially for those GLP-1 agonists that have been around for over 15 years. They could actually be cost-effective, but that information was not captured because they didn't look at the individual drugs. So traditionally, Nicole, something is declared cost-effective if it costs less than $50,000 per quality-adjusted life year. Basically, the beneficial effects of the drug could be achieved at a reasonable cost. Now, what's a reasonable cost, of course, is a value judgment. There's nothing magical about $50,000 threshold, but it's a benchmark that's commonly cited. I think the real litmus test is whether patients and prescribers are enthusiastic about using a medication in practice. And and so that's my question. Are you enthusiastic about using SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists in your practice? And do you think they are currently underused, overused, or perhaps misused? And and do the results of this cost-effectiveness analysis influence whether or not you'd use one of these agents instead of metformin in patients who do not have a compelling indication? So generally in our day-to-day practice, the majority of our patients with type 2 diabetes are using the SGLT2 inhibitors as well as GLP-1 agonists or even a combination of them. Most of the patients that we see are generally started on one of these agents as initial treatment or sometimes in combination with metformin. But usually those patients are also suffering from a comorbidity like hypertension, heart failure, kidney disease, or obesity, which, as you know, the majority of patients with type 2 diabetes have at least one of these, if not multiple. We do see great blood glucose control from the patients who are using one or both of these classes of medications, and we've also seen good patient satisfaction with using them as well. Typically, when we do see a newly diagnosed patient with type 2 diabetes without any comorbidities, depending on what their A1C is, of course, metformin is still our primary choice as first-line therapy. This study does make us think more about the cost, but if someone has a compelling indication with an elevated A1C and the medications are affordable to them, then we have no issue really prescribing these agents first or second line. And even though metformin is certainly much more affordable, we know that it doesn't have as much evidence for things like blood pressure lowering, kidney protection, weight loss, or even as great of cardiovascular protection. So sometimes it does make sense for us to give those SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 agonists first. 
The majority of our patients, however, have usually been on metformin and continue using it along with these agents, or they could not tolerate metformin for whatever reason and had to discontinue it. And that's usually, again, where we would utilize an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 agonist. I would also report that we've seen some of the GLP-1 agonists being misused in practice, particularly for patients who are obese without diabetes, because they're often started on a sample and then they're not able to fill the prescription at the pharmacy due to coverage or plan limitations. We've even seen misuse of GLP therapy quite often because many of the providers see it as a safe weight loss medication for patients but there are many other factors to consider for weight management that are not being addressed in our healthcare system. And these medications are often expensive and a quick fix to dropping weight without really considering all the other aspects that go into sustainable weight loss management. So while the results of this study do suggest that SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 agonists are not cost-effective as first line and should not be used in Patients who are newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes without compelling indications were also not deterred from using these agents in our patients, particularly those that would benefit from additional things such as weight loss. With a new emphasis placed on weight loss in the 2023 ADA guidelines, it's no surprise that these two classes of medications have taken off and are often prescribed as first or second line therapy without any other compelling indication. And I think that is just one major benefit that makes these medications so appealing to providers and patients alike. Amanda, Nicole, I so appreciate you reviewing this paper and writing a commentary about this important topic for iFormerX. And I know pharmacoeconomic analyses are not easy to sort through, so I really appreciate you taking on this tough task. Well, the high cost of these medications is clearly a barrier to their use. And I think until the unit price comes down to less than $200, $300 a month, it doesn't seem fiscally prudent to favor their use over metformin unless there's some compelling indication. But tell us what you think. Are you using SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists as first-line primary therapy in your practice you can post a comment by logging into iFormerX.org, but remember, only members of iFormerX can post comments and use the interactive features. So if you're not already a member of iFormerX, sign up today. It's, it's easy to join, and it's free to health professionals. And by the way, if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, you can earn recertification and continuing education credit for listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary posted on our website. In partnership with the American Pharmacists Association, this program is part of their evidence-based practice literature evaluation series, which is available online, on demand, anytime, anywhere. So just click on the link posted directly below the written commentary on our website to learn more. And lastly, I want to thank Daniel Longyore at Geisinger Health for being a loyal member and contributor to iFormerX over the years. Dan was the ACCP AmCare PRN chair when the Innovations Grant was first offered about a decade ago, and iFormerX was the first winner of that grant program. Dan encouraged me to apply, 
Over the years, Dan has written commentaries, helped maintain one of our resource pages, and encouraged his colleagues at Geisinger to become members of iFormerX and follow his lead by contributing to iFormerX in various ways. So thank you, Dan, for your leadership and for helping make iFormerX a reality. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.